Uh, I'd like to tell you a story about a couple of folks who you may know. I've changed their names for the sake of anonymity, but maybe you know who they are. First is Angela. Angela. Angela is tired. Uh, this pandemic has been gone, going on long enough for Angela. She's tired of it, sick of it. Kids home full-time, but still caring for aging parents, by the way, and maintaining a full-time job. And, oh, that victory garden that she planted several months ago, now it's just overwhelming her. And, and the house, cleaning the house, she didn't know when the house was clean last. She's feeling guilty because, well, she thinks she's supposed to be reading books, at least during the time off. And, and exercise, oh, yeah, there was something about exercising that she forgot about. She'd lay in bed at night worried about the way that she talked to her kids convincing herself that, that uh, they were struggling in school and life all because of her. But then her evening ritual of saying her prayers, at least I do that, she thinks to herself, and she says the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our, our daily bread, she prays, and turns out the lights and falls asleep. And then there's Mark. Mark, there was a time when Mark ran a great business. People all around town trusted Mark and, 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 and respected him because of it. He worked endless hours like a lot of small business owners do, uh, trying his best to build the best business that he could, not just for profit, but because he felt that the community deserved it. His customers deserved it. His employees deserved it. But the pandemic, it's been tough on Mark. Now, look, sales were sort of maybe stabilizing, maybe even falling even before all this began, but the quarantine, it almost did him in. Cutbacks helped, made the business leaner and meaner, but Mark was, I don't know, working harder than he ever had, trying to iron some things out, but money was now running out, and customers, they just didn't seem to be returning like he had hoped. Mark was at the end of his rope, nowhere to turn. Give me this day, give us this day, our daily bread, he'd pray during the church's online broadcast. Jessica, Jessica was, well, let's just say she was anxious. Her senior year had not gone like she had expected. Come on, it hadn't gone like anybody had expected. Uh, but that was behind her, and in a few days, she was heading off. She was stepping into a college dorm, meeting new friends, learning a new routine. Exciting, right? Except that she was scared to death. She was afraid. Been there? Stressed? Worried? Afraid? I mean, some of it, sure, the result of COVID, some of it just because of daily life. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. More specifically, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Just help me get through this moment, this season, this day, oh Lord. You know, it's interesting, there was a time years and years ago, generations, centuries ago, when many, many people felt the same way. Years and years ago in a hilly green uh, region called Galilee. It's the setting of, of a large portion of the Gospels of Jesus' life, and yet it's a relatively small area. It's only 50 miles north-south, 25 miles east to west. It's almost like driving from here to Hickory and then Statesville to Winston. That's the region, the geographic area that we're talking about in terms of Jesus' ministry. 
ministry, uh, and it was a small area, but with tons and tons of villages, lots of people, lots and lots of villages. And over the years, these villages sort of blurred together uh, into almost one. There were 204 villages in those days, almost all of them along the shores of a great lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's estimated that none of the villages had less than 15,000 people, which means that if you lived in Galilee in those days, this is the time of Jesus, there were always people around you. There was no such thing as a quiet escape. Well, one day, somebody heard that this great preacher was in town, and everybody knew who it was. You know who it is. Who is it? Jesus. Always the good answer, right? Everybody knew about the guy because he had been preaching there for a while and teaching, and so it didn't take long for hundreds, thousands of people to show up, to take a look, to, to participate, to enjoy what he had been offering them, most of these Galileans along the lakeshore. After several days of preaching, though, the teacher was very, very tired, and so he said his goodbyes and set sail for the other side of the lake, which is about eight miles distance. It was time for rest. It was time to take a break. That's the setting, by the way, for what has become one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of the feeding of 5,000 people, and I'd like to read you Matthew's version of that story now. Jesus withdrew from that place, from these villages, from these people, masses of people. He withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place all by himself. But when the crowds heard about it, they followed him on foot from the towns and villages. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and, and he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a pretty deserted place, Jesus, and, and the hour, it's now pretty late, so how about we send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves? But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but, uh, I don't know what, five loaves of bread and, and two fish. And, and Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all, all ate and they were filled and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's a remarkable story, right? The summary is pretty simple. People were hungry, Jesus fed them. People were uh, weary, Jesus cared for them. You might ask, by the way, how do you know that they were weary? right? Nothing in Scripture tells us that. Well, there's an interesting part of the story. It's right after we're told that Jesus needed some R&R, that He needed to refuel. So, He goes to the other side of the lake, you notice? But, but then it, it tells us that when, when the crowds saw Him, they followed Him on foot from all of their towns and their villages. In other words, they wouldn't leave Him alone. They ran along the shoreline, and they followed Him to the other side of the lake, which isn't a walk in the park. I mentioned that it's eight miles across, which is sort of like walking from here and not walking, running, mind you, to keep up with the boat, running from here to the other side of faith, right? I mean, they were eager. They were desperate. 
They left their villages. They left their families. They left their occupations so that they might surround this, this Jesus, right? But they, they, they didn't care. They had been following Him for days, listening to Him teach, watching Him heal. And then when they finally catch up to Him on the other side of the lake, it's interesting what happens next because you'd almost sort of assume that Jesus would be like, oh my goodness, will they not leave me alone, right? And I have to admit to you, <laughs> like, you know, you've had a long day, and uh, it's late, I don't know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and someone shows up unannounced. I, I, I have to admit, maybe this is the human part of me, the center part of me, but compassion usually isn't the first word that comes to mind, right? And yet, that's Jesus. Jesus looked with compassion upon them. Jesus looked into all of their faces, their weary faces, and He had compassion for them all day long, not letting up, continuing to give His best. And then when it's evening, the disciples come to Him and say, Lord, this is a… And ain't nothing around here, right? Ain't no convenience stores nearby, no fast food, nobody has anything to eat. So we suggest that you, you send the crowds away. It's, they're hungry, you know? I mean, we're all hungry, and we just need to go and get something to eat, but Jesus said something that had to have surprised everyone. They certainly didn't expect it. He said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, the Bible doesn't show reactions, right? We have no emojis in Scripture, but you can imagine the reaction of the disciples, right? When they heard Jesus say, you give them something to eat, they had to have looked with each, at each other and thought, is, is He crazy? What is He thinking about now? But, but then just Jesus says, what do you have? Well, there's five loaves here, two, two fish. That's it. That's not going to go very far. Bring me what you have, Jesus said. Bring them to me. Now think about it. 5,000 people, five loaves, two fish. It's laughable. I mean, really, it's silly. It's, I mean, an insignificant amount of food for a large number of people. It's, it's essentially worthless. I mean, this, this small amount. Joe knows you, you can't feed an entire crew that's come to Ivan's for dinner at night with just two pieces of bread, right? And maybe some beer soup or beer cheese. I don't know what it is that you, that you have that you could pull out of the refrigerator to feed the rest of the crowds, but you got to have a lot more, a lot more than that. But Jesus, Jesus simply says, bring me what you have. I don't care how big it is or how small it is. I don't care how valuable or invaluable you or others or the world might think that it is. Take an inventory of the gifts that you have to offer and bring them to the Lord. What's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to feed them. That's the name of the story, feeding of 5,000 people. But it's important to notice what he first does. Verse 19, it's clear. Jesus takes the loaves. He, he takes the food. He looks up to heaven, and he blesses it. He blesses it, which is interesting. Because the first time in Scripture that we hear that Jesus looks up to heaven it's at his baptism, and at that moment, God blesses Jesus to engage in a remarkable journey for the rest of his life. 
The last time Jesus looks up to heaven is when he's on a cross ready to die because of being executed by all the crowd that had surrounded him, all those who were jeering at him at that moment of his, of his excruciating death. And Jesus looks up to heaven, right? And then Jesus blesses the crowd. What that tells me is that there's something very, very special about this idea of God's blessing And it is this, when Jesus looks to heaven and offers his blessing, he is taking what is ordinary and he is making it extraordinary. Here's the point, claim what you have, claim it, and bring it before the Lord with thanksgiving, but also with expectation. Because here's the thing, God is going to make what we think is ordinary and he's going to make it extraordinary. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you bring. If you're bringing it for the purpose of building up God's kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, if you're bringing it for the purpose of extending God's reign of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and justice for the world, if that is your goal, then God is going to use whatever you bring and do amazing, remarkable, miraculous things with it. My kids have heard me tell this story a hundred times, so I apologize for telling it again, but it's worth repeating. When Krista and I were in Tanzania the first time years and years ago, we worshiped at Karika Lutheran Church in Arusha, Tanzania. Great worship, inspiring worship. Kids were literally hanging out the windows, um, eager to be a part of that worship service. There were two offerings that day. I guess the first one didn't bring in enough or what, but they just kept on passing around the baskets. But at the end of worship, um, everyone gathered at the outside entrance of the church in a circle for a closing benediction. It's the same thing that happened when we visited with Carter in Rwanda last summer. It was a great way of sending people out into the world. I mean, visually, it's really pretty cool. You leave this space, you leave these walls, and you gather around, and you say, now you go. You go into the world, your villages, your towns, wherever you're going. Go and go with the love of Christ. But something else happened, because at that moment, as they gathered around, there began an auction. People who didn't have money to put in the offering plate, they brought what they had. Vegetables, chickens, sweet bananas, it didn't matter. Whatever they had. There was a huge spirit of giving. Then unannounced, the man, and I promise you I'm not making this up, the guy who was literally standing beside me, he took off the clean white shirt that he was wearing that day. It looked like he had pressed it that morning. And he even auctioned that shirt off for sale. It's all that he had. The man literally gave the shirt off of his back. Listen to me. You have something to give. You do. You have something to give this world. Make no mistake about it. Now, you may have been told that what you have is just ordinary. You may have been told that what you have is insignificant. I don't know, maybe the world has told you that. Maybe your friends or others around you have told you that. Maybe that, you know, sometimes those inner voices within us try to tell us those kinds of things, that that what we have to offer is really not all that much, especially in comparison to what everybody else has to offer. No, just little old me, I don't have all that much to offer, but you do. What the world has claimed as ordinary, God is prepared and ready at this moment to make it an extraordinary blessing for the sake of the world. 
when Anna was born, what, 18 years ago, uh, we used a midwife as the lady who helped us with that birthing process. She had been a really good friend of ours for a number of years. And, and what that meant is that she gave me the opportunity to literally participate in the, in the birthing. Krista did all the hard work. We know that, right? But as she's giving birth, I'm actually receiving Anna into my hands. It's a very special moment. But in that moment, of course, you can only imagine that for me, I could tell that this was a, an extraordinary girl. And that this very extraordinary gift was going to make a big, big difference in this world. Every time we came to church and every time we gathered around the table, every time we heard from the Word of God, we, we were reminded of that very thing, that here is an extraordinary gift who has been given uh, for the sake of the world, who has been formed in the image of God for the sake of extending the reign of God into this world. You know she's not alone because you too are extraordinary. When God brought you into this world, claimed you by name, claimed you as a precious son and daughter of a king, he was saying to you, to your parents, and to the rest of this world, I will make of you a great offering for the sake of the world. So go and be that extraordinary gift for the sake of your friends, your family, for this community, for this congregation, for your schools, wherever you land, be that extraordinary gift for the world. Amen.